You're listening to Malka Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Time for us to welcome Pais and Sagesh Azuma to the program. Wasail al-Ihlam Sadiqa, truthful news. And alhamdulillah, as we try on the show to read the lines in between the lines when it comes to mainstream media. And you need to be careful that you don't fall hook, line and sinker for all that's being regurgitated by spin doctors and so forth. But alhamdulillah, George Galloway and friends have, you know, exposed NATO and uh, recently they held an event where uh, various speakers uh, came on the podium and uh, spoke against uh, NATO making a lot of sense uh, so uh, sit back and enjoy and uh, a little later on we'll also be joined uh, by uh, George's other friends uh, who will be telling you what's really happening in the world of uh, meretricious beauty and uh, deceit we could have sold out this whole ten times Ten times. We've already sold out three times. I think it's very fitting. By the way, I see some signs up there, and I appreciate them. Free Julie Massage, and I echo that. Very telling. And I think we should all meditate on this. How just as Julie Assange had to find asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy, we had to find asylum at the Venezuelan Cultural Center. try to tell the world how to be democratic and how to have free speech and free rights. We have to go to a Venezuelan building to hold this event. House heretics and protect them and they will not house us. Despite the fact that what we're saying is true. But of course, as Dostoevsky wrote many years ago, it's easier to forgive someone for being wrong than to forgive them for being right. Of what is surely the hope of the people of the United States, so that's their business. The People's Party of America is the leader of rage against the war machine in Washington, D.C. What happened in the United States and its significance? A week ago, we brought 3,000 people out to the Lincoln Memorial, an iconic location where Dr. Martin Luther King and others have given their speeches against war and poverty, and they joined us there to rage against the war machine. We're tired of our hard-earned money going to these wars. A hundred billion dollars in the United States has been spent on top of an 850 billion dollar annual military budget that grows every year while programs to reduce poverty crash, while programs for food stamps crash, while homelessness explodes, and people are getting tired of it because it's a billion dollars here, two billion dollars there, tanks over here, uh, patriot weapon systems over there, one after the other after the other in the news, while everybody sees that their own lives are becoming worse and worse, while all of our funds are being shipped over to Ukraine for these wars and risking a nuclear war that would annihilate all of us. Dennis uh, Kucinich, who's a former uh, uh, congressman, and he just has uh, given me a statement that he'd like me to read out to you today. So let me just do that before I get into my speech. 
He says this, as you gather today in London, know there are many Americans who are cheering on your efforts to awaken the United Kingdom to the disaster which awaits everyone should NATO members continue to choose escalation over diplomacy in dealing with Russia. The war in Ukraine should have never happened. Western leaders have used the brave men and women of Ukraine as pawns in an international power play to isolate Russia and destroy its energy resources. The destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines under the orders of President Biden, as reported by Seymour Hirsch, is a grim reminder of how the domestic security of the German people in winter was cynically sacrificed to the callous designs of global domination by ideologues. Let us stand together for the security of our nations and the world for an end to the war in Ukraine, for an end to the danger of nuclear war, and for a new beginning assuring human and ecological security under the banner of strength through peace. Thank you, Dan. About someone who should be celebrated, but who most people have never heard of. I'm talking about Smedley Butler, who retired from the US military in 1931. He'd been a general in the US Marine Corps and was a loyal servant of US imperialism. He joined the Marines as an idealistic 16-year-old and spent much of his military career thinking he was engaged in a noble endeavor. But the light of experience changed him. He came to the awful realization that his military career wasn't in the service of a noble cause after all. He recognized that he was simply serving the profit motive of big business. And after he retired, he didn't pull any punches about the real motive for war. He said he'd spent most of his life, and I quote, as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. And he added, in short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. In 1935, he also published a book entitled War is a Racket, which in my opinion should be taught in every school in the land. He said it's the only racket in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. Now that was 88 years ago, but rather than heed Butler's words, political leaders, including Labour Party leaders, have made the situation considerably worse. In the modern world, it's NATO that acts as a muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for the bankers. And the Labour Party is one of NATO's biggest cheerleaders. Yet those of us who campaign for peace and oppose war are smeared and demonised by NATO's liberal lackeys and the corporate media which does the war machine's bidding. But we cannot let the war machine and its toadying trolls and sycophantic media hacks prevail. These trolls pulled out all the stops to get this event cancelled today, including a campaign of intimidation against two of the previous venues who'd accepted our booking. Yet here we are, making a stand for peace and humanity. And we can only go from strength to strength, in my opinion, because people are increasingly coming to the realisation that what we're demanding is plain common sense. 
But all the political class on both sides of the Atlantic are enthralled to NATO. They're addicted to war. So they use public money to acquire more and more weapons. Let's look at the defence spending in uh, defence spending by 2030. But that equates to £157 billion of taxpayers' money uh, going into the war machine. And that's on top of, by the way, a £17 billion increase during COVID, which not many people know about. Now, we're in dispute. We've had no pay for three years, and I know you're not going to cry into your shirt sleeves about train drivers just yet, but there are other workers who are so poorly paid that they have to go to food banks, and obviously the nurses um, are a good cause there. But that £157 billion, I would argue, would go a long way to endest, uh, ending that industrial unrest. And if they gave the nurses a 10% pay rise, this would only cost, I know it's a big number, but only cost £23 billion. So I know where my money would rather go. There are far more pressing things in this country that we need to spend our money more on than killing people. Should a warning to China three days ago, before President Xi's peace proposals, when they didn't know what was in the peace proposals, there will be consequences for China should it decide to deepen its relations with Russia. Think of the arrogance, first of all, of that. We'll come to the stupidity. But think of the arrogance of one superpower threatening a second superpower with consequences were it to decide to have more friendly relations with a third party. The sense of exceptionalism you must feel to think you're entitled to do that, to think you're entitled to warn other countries who they can be friends with. But let's turn to the stupidity of it. You know, from Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger onwards, it was the policy of the United States to keep Russia as Russia and China as far apart as it was possible to keep them and if possible to keep them at each other's throats. In the last few years the policy of the United States and NATO has made Russia and China virtually one country certainly militarily and economically one country and now they think China is going to obey orders from somebody called Antony Blinken? The days when China could be ordered around by foreigners is over, 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 over. South Africa was warned. Why are you having joint naval exercises with the Russian and Chinese navies? As the leadership in South Africa pointed out, when you Western colonialist countries were supporting the apartheid dictatorship in South Africa, the only countries that stood with us were Russia and China. And you want us every dinner that the African National Congress fighters ate in the bush came from Russia. Every uniform they had, every gun that they carried, Every international initiative, campaign, 
that they were able to mount to bring about the freedom of South Africa came from the then Soviet Union and from China. And now you want South Africa to be an enemy of Russia and China? Are you crazy? And South Africa has said no. India has said no. The Arab worlds, even the Saudis and the kings and the sheikhs in the desert have said no. The world, imagine you speak for the world. The West, if you include it in it, countries that are very definitely not in the West. The last time I looked at the globe, Australia is not in the West. New Zealand is not in the West. But even if you allow them to call themselves the West, is 13% of the people of the world. One, three. 13% of the world's population lives in what could loosely be described as the West. And we are here to say, even in the West, there are millions and millions and millions of us who reject one of Her Majesty's former ambassadors, in his case to Uzbekistan, from which lofty position he was dismissed by the Blair government and the Foreign Secretary Jack Straw for, and I quote, over-focusing on human rights. <laughs> Something worth remembering when you hear the prattle about human rights today. And his presence here illustrates the point I made earlier, that this is the broadest possible move that you don't have to be left or right or center, that you don't have to have agreed, all of us with each other, on all previous matters. You don't pass any ideological blood test to be here. To be here, all you have to do is oppose NATO's war, say no. What annoys me most is his teetotal. <laughs> is a Russian saying, uh, which is that you should never trust a man who doesn't drink <laughs> because he must be hiding something. Which... <laughs> These matters are complex. It is not a situation that you can look at and say these are the goodies and these are the baddies. This is absolute right or wrong. You're looking at the working out of very complex historical shifts and antagonisms and fights for the resources over centuries. But the one thing you can say for certain is that the answer to none of these questions is to kill people. War is never justified. My own view is that simply as a matter of international law, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was illegal. It was illegal in international law, as illegal as the British invasion of Iraq was illegal in international law. Was it provoked? Yes. Can we understand why it happened? Yes. Uh, was it legal? No. But we are where we are. And the question is now, how do you stop? Now, we had been told throughout the Cold War 
that the Soviet Union was this massively powerful, frightening military power, and that we needed to spend huge amounts of public money on weapons systems and military and security services in order to defend ourselves against this massive military power. When the Soviet Union collapsed, and when Western experts, defense attaches and others, were able uh, to get in and actually visit the Russian army, the former Soviet army, uh, they discovered that Russia had approximately 40% of the weapon systems that the intelligence had told us they had, and that those weapon systems were approximately half as effective as uh, the intelligence had told us they had, because the threat of the Soviet Union was massively, massively exaggerated by Western intelligence in order to justify massive arms spending and the corruption and the money and the, and the uh, job go down that goes with it. Um, and that remains true to this day. I know a lot of people would love it if the, uh, the West and Western imperialism and Western aggression were counterbalanced by an equal military force. But it isn't. Russian armed forces are not that strong. And the idea being sold through the media that the Russian army, which cannot take Kiev, could march through Kiev, through Warsaw, through Berlin, through Brussels, through Amsterdam, through Paris, and march through London is obvious bollocks. But that is the idea which we have not a war with good guys and bad guys on either side. The people who control militaries, the people who control the weapons of death, the people who send ordinary young people to fight and die and who result in, million, in thousands and thousands of civilian casualties, they are not good people on either side. This war is evil. Against NATO aggression, and you know, I think in that circumstance, we should be thinking about what we think is the appropriate thing for the peace movement to be doing. In particular, we're now moving into a period where uh, the unipolar world, we've known since the end of the Soviet Union, is coming to an end, and it's very clear to everyone who pays attention that the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, and many others are getting together, and as a result of that, American power is going to dissolve, and we see we're seeing, you know, the, the birth pangs of a multipolar world in the conflict in, in Ukraine. And I think that's one of the things that we, I'd like to, I wanted to kind of highlight, and that's one of the reasons I've, I've come here to talk about it. The, the censorship we face now is a, of a much greater order than it was in 2003, for example. So in 2003, whenever it was the case that the government would put out um, a bit of propaganda, within days it would be debunked, and that debunking would eventually make its way to the mainstream media. Now if you debunk government propaganda on, on Ukraine uh, over alleged Russian massacres or whatever it is, or the Kerch Bridge or whatever, you, nobody in the mainstream pays any attention whatsoever. There is a total blanket of censorship, so it's almost impossible to get out simply truthful things about what's happening in Ukraine. If you do get 
uh, truthful statements out, then you are derided and attacked by all these uh, uh, NGOs focusing on their work, work on disinformation, the disinformation industrial complex. Now, all of these organisations, without any exceptions, are funded indirectly by Western governments. So we, we, we have a, a total blanket of censorship. My Twitter account is shadow banned, many other people's Twitter accounts are shadow banned. Mine also says Iran state affiliated media because I run a show called Palestine Declassified, uh, which is broadcast on press TV. So there is a huge blanket of censorship, more than anything I've ever known in my adult life. Okay, look, we're here with Low Key. Uh, it's just before the last session of the No to NATO, No to War rally. Uh, I just want to ask you, Low Key, what, what is it you think about this censorship of any anti-war voices? I mean, do you think that they've gone too far? Do you think this, there might be a counter to that? The reality is that Britain, uh, even as far back as World War One, has always sought to marginalize the anti-war voices in the world. We are around the corner from Russell Square, which is named after the family of Bertrand Russell. This was somebody who spent six months in prison because of his opposition to World War One. You saw people even sentenced to death during World War One for opposing the war and for refusing to kill. Some of those were excommunicated and that was good, but we have also seen in the United States someone like Eugene Debs, because he opposed World War One, he spent years in prison and a million people voted for him to be president while he was in prison because of his opposition to World War One. In fact, you're seeing the legislation which was established at that time, the Espionage Act, to crush anti-war feeling in the US be used against Julian Assange potentially by the US government. So in many ways, what we see today is a development on what took place before. In terms of the reality of the situation, Britain is the fifth largest economy in the world and it is scheduled and promised to fall to the 11th largest economy in the world. That process will not be painless. Uh, the United States, of course, is the first uh, largest economy in the world and it's scheduled to fall below China. What Britain and the United States are making clear is that they will go out kicking and screaming. But actually, that is a return to a more natural economic equilibrium. We can't forget that when the East India Company was founded in the 1600s, Britain was a tiny percentage of the world's economy, whereas China and India were almost around 50% of the world's economy when taken together. What you saw through the hundred years, the hundreds of years of British uh, colonialism and Britain occupying 14.7 million square miles of the planet was Britain seeking to de-industrialize the countries it occupied and actually wield the produce in those countries for the interests of Britain. People were kept as captive labor. They were also used as captive markets and also the resources were used to enrich people in London. However, we do know that at that time, literally as recently as the late 1800s, the life expectancy, even in places like Bethnal Green, for people that worked in chimneys was something like 16 years old. So what you actually saw was the elites of these countries able to enrich themselves. Now what you've seen since the beginning of the neoliberal era was China take its place as the workshop of the world. Now the natural consequence of that is that China 
is therefore the number one trading partner of most of the large economies in the world, even countries that the United States is attempting to uh, manipulate against the Chinese. Do you think people in the European Union don't know that the United States blew up the Nord Stream pipeline? Of course they do. People are aching for a different world, a fairer world, a more even world, a more just world. And this event, and others like it, are merely an expression of that yearning for a different world. So I say it doesn't matter how they attempt to censor us, as the book burners of the past have found. Whenever you suppress ideas, you make it harder to justify your own arguments against those ideas. And in fact, you reveal how synthetic your arguments against those ideas actually are because you have had to resort to such tactics. Yes, sir, people, uh, this um, conference held at a building in the UK, but, uh, you know, it was uh, given to them by the Venezuelan uh, embassy and uh, it took place. And, uh, you know, speakers coming on and say the arrogance of the U.S. Um, threatening China, telling them what to do and, uh, you know, still uh, believing uh, that they are still the superpower of this world. Uh, little realizing that America slowly but surely is ebbing away and her power waning away. And, uh, you know, this policy of uh, uh, having uh, this tension between uh, Russia and China was uh, the policy of the Nixon-Kissinger combination. And, uh, you know, they uh, throughout the world, uh, they started pushing in the Cold War and so forth. And all this went through. And uh, the diplomacy shuttle or the shuttler was uh, Kissinger going from this country to that country, whispering seeds of uh, discord all over. So that was uh, the problem there. And it started there. And, you know, it can't go on forever. Uh, the Ukraine crisis and, uh, you know, uh, what has the Ukraine crisis done? Uh, you know, uh, NATO and its allies and the uh, U.S., uh, the, uh, you know, the main instigator is uh, forcing the world into you either with us or you against us. And uh, for America... They can see what that policy of with us and against us is doing to them. Actually, they're isolating themselves. And you notice uh, that uh, China and Russia have uh, become even more closer and uh, have become like one country. If you really look at it, you know, the uh, oil exports and gas sales all done in uh, yuan and, and into the rubles and so forth. And India, too, has joined the fray uh, buying oil uh, from uh, Russia with its rupees and paying, I mean, on rubles and so forth. So there is a shift in the paradigm, and America is still wondering, biting its nails. Uh, the uh, mainstream media pushing uh, the uh, propaganda that, uh, yes, America and its allies, uh, you know, will uh, definitely help Ukraine in crushing the Russians. And, uh, well, people that believe it, you need to have, yeah, you need to have a checkout. And uh, then uh, the, uh, if you look at history, yeah, uh, one of the speakers also said, if you look at uh, this war, it is, it is evil. He says, forget calling it war. It is downright evil what we are seeing and what's happening in, the, in, 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 in this uh, scenario of this world. And uh, you know what? Perhaps uh, NATO and its partners and uh, the West shooting themselves in the foot. Then there was another speaker that said that during World War I, if you, uh, if you opposed the war, and if you spoke out against the war, you were sentenced and uh, you were shut out. You were marginalized from society. You were not allowed to talk or even oppose uh, the, any war that they wanted to perpetrate. And, you know, it is said 
that the U.S. is the largest economy in the world, maybe no more. It was, uh, you know, where do you get these stats? Where do you get these figures? And where do you get that? Petrodollar, the petrodollar is soon to be re replaced, soon to be history. So uh, uh, China perhaps will become the largest economy in the world with India and uh, you know, Russia and so forth coming to the fore. And, and then we also talk about uh, the BRICS group uh, becoming more powerful in uh, this uh, type of scenario. So uh, everything is going on. And it is also said by one of the speakers that uh, the exploitation of these governments, they exploited the masses, they exploited the people, they duped the people, they used cheap labor in other countries uh, to move the goods and to sell the goods and export it all over, just using sweatshops and this and that all over. And what have they done? They have duped the masses for far too long. And now, and now, people are crying out. People want, they want a change. They are actually, the words used, they are aching for another new world order. And this will come through. So people, uh, let's move on with George Galloway and friends. The brain, what was George W. Bush? Well, I'll let you work out that anatomical detail for yourselves. The simian swagger of Bush could certainly not have sold the war anything like as popularly in some quarters as Tony Blair, the smooth-tongued snake oil salesman, managed to do. After all, once you can fake the sincerity, the rest is easy. That's always been his maxim. He became the United States ambassador to the world in that period, in the run-up to the war, almost exactly 20 years ago. We're running this poll, and I'm making these remarks because we are preparing some very special content for you on the anniversary of the Iraq invasion. An invasion and occupation, the consequences of which are still reverberating, not just throughout Iraq, not just throughout the region, but throughout the entire world, even in our own streets. Mercifully, not for some time, but who would bet against those implications reverberating once again in the streets of London. But on the streets of Lahore, uh, there is blood running in the streets. One young PTI party worker, Bilal Ali, has already been martyred. Others have been severely beaten and wounded. Some may not survive the night. The proximate reason is the election, a general election, for all of the provincial assembly seats in the crucial, critical state of Punjab, which is the home state of Imran Khan and the biggest of the many national vote banks that his party, the PTI, hold. These by-elections for every single seat are likely to lead to a landslide victory for Imran Khan, who runs at around 75 to 80 percent in every opinion poll taken by any credible organization, so much so that opinion polls are now banned in Pakistan. The Prime Minister, Imran Khan, is not allowed to appear on television, any television. He has been holed up under house arrest since being shot 
in the leg in an attempted assassination attempt which we covered widely here on the mother of all talk shows. But that was not enough. Fearing a landslide Punjab victory for Imran Khan, the regime, the imported puppet regime installed by the United States of America, the State Department, the ambassador to Islamabad, and of course ultimately the White House of Joe Biden itself, has decided that Imran Khan must not live. Because if he lives, not only will he sweep the boards in any free and fair democratic election, but that he might win enough of a majority, three quarters, to fundamentally alter the Pakistan constitution, a constitution which very badly needs to be fundamentally altered. And then, of course, there's the possibility that he will seek to hold to account all those exiled politicians who had run away from Pakistan were living in exile on their ill-gotten gains looted from the poor people of Pakistan. The government that was installed by the US looked like, read like, the front page of the police gazette, like a wanted poster. The prime minister himself was wanted for gigantic financial malfeasance. But he's still the so-called prime minister because the US could not find anybody else to install instead of the popular leader Imran Khan. And so the of tonight's events is an election. But the real cause is the need to rid themselves of this turbulent priest, Imran Khan. As I've said many times before, I'm not his party man. I have not been traditionally a supporter of the PTI, but I am a supporter of justice and I am a supporter of democracy. Indeed, I have been decorated with the highest civil award in Pakistan for my work in the 1980s for the movement for the restoration of democracy in that country. So I didn't face General Ziaul Haq working underground with the MRD in order to sell the idea of democracy to the Americans just because Imran Khan rather than Benazir Bhutto was this time the victim. The victim stands to be arrested, you may say. He'll only be taken to prison, you may say. But if you said that, you'd be a fool. Because if Imran Khan disappears behind bars in the dungeons of the puppet government in Islamabad, you will never see him again. And that would be a catastrophe, not just for Imran Khan, for his family, for the three quarters of the people of Pakistan who support him. It would be a catastrophe for the region. It would be a catastrophe for the world. Pakistan is a gigantic country with hundreds of millions of people in it and with a fleet of nuclear weapons. Instability, turmoil, chaos, bloodshed, civil war in Pakistan would be a clear and present danger to the world. And I say to the British government, including to Zach Goldsmith, the former brother-in-law of Imran Khan, 
who's a minister in the British Foreign Office, you better pull your finger out and use your influence and, yes, power in Pakistan to bring this situation under control, to save the life of Imran Khan, <laughs> not just because that's right in itself, but because the consequences of Imran Khan being killed in jail in Pakistan are too awful to contemplate for all of us. Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson and the chief lieutenants of the medical industrial complex who have been revealed, unveiled by the heroic publishing effort of the Daily Telegraph, publishing stolen goods, publishing stolen documents in the public interest, just like Julian Assange is facing extradition to the United States and 174 years in a supermax prison for doing. Why don't you make that connection, Mr. Daily Telegraph? Nonetheless, I commend you. You and Isabel Oakshaw, I say to Richard Tice again, don't give that woman your telephone. I have reason to caution you, even before Matt Hancock found out that while she was ghostwriting his book, she was going through his WhatsApp messages and has now plastered them across the front page of the newspapers. And it's a good thing that she did. Because what she has done is reveal the chaos and the mendacity of the leaders of the British government when it came to the lockdowns from 2020 onwards. These lockdowns were judged by more than 20,000 voters on here just last Sunday to have been a disaster, to have been unnecessary, to have been badly implemented, implemented in entirely the wrong way. But we are still suffering the after effects of the British government's disastrous handling of the pandemic, of the lockdowns and all that came from them. Our economy may never recover. Millions, many millions of British people may never recover their mental health or their physical health that was sacrificed at the altar of a gigantic scare story to scare the pants off the British public. Not my words, the words of the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock. Pretty soon he's going to wish he was back in that jungle because he's tied to a tree now and all of his enemies are coming towards him. The United States of America, to avoid the consequences of Seymour Hersh's devastating journalistic expose of the American and Norwegian role in the blowing up of Germany's vital national infrastructure, costing well over 20 billion euros and polluting the sea and the atmosphere with methane forever in a gigantic, incredible explosion is now being blamed on a group of Ukrainians on a yacht. It was 200 meters under the sea. It was encased in two inch thick concrete. It would have taken a major, significant military, national power to blow up that pipeline. To blame it 
on a Ukrainian oligarch on a sailing boat with amateur divers is simply preposterous. And the fact that the Americans expect you to believe it, the fact that the government of Germany appears to believe it, is almost beyond comprehension. Luckily, it's being laughed loudly, ribaldly, around the world, out of court. The German government will not be able to sell to their public opinion that this was some kind of freelance affair and for which they will take some unnamed and definitely petty sanction against the government of Ukraine, which, of course, if it was a Ukrainian oligarch what done it, then Zelensky had to know about it and facilitate it. But the German government will not be able to persuade their public that that's what happened. And the rest of the European public is rapidly opening its eyes on the whole Ukraine affair. As they shiver in this winter, we're here in Britain and not far from me, we are expecting 15 inches of snow. Cannot afford to keep our houses warm are paying three, sometimes four times the amount for heating as we were doing last year at this time. Our economy sinking, our inflation rate rocketing, our industries closing. Hundreds of thousands of British businesses, hundreds of thousands, some 620,000 British businesses alone will close this year as a result of this economic crisis brought on overwhelming by the foolish leaders that rule our countries and who have jumped over a cliff at the behest of an imbecile in the White House of America, a man who doesn't even know he is the President of the United States of America. As an act of self-harm, as an act of national suicide, it's pretty difficult to beat in all the history of humanity. And the public are no longer wearing it. If you don't believe me, take a collection can out in the street for the war effort in Ukraine. Rattle your tin in the street, in the shopping mall, in your workplace for more weapons for Ukraine. Your tin will not rattle much because not much will be put in it. The turbans are down. The ribbons are down. The lights on the public buildings are down. The people have woken up. The politicians, not yet. But that is bound to follow. Because all of them face election at one point or another in this election cycle. And as Dr. Johnson said, the knowledge that one is to be hanged in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully. And you have the ability to hang all of these leaders, metaphorically, this year, next year, or the year after that. When the public move, they vote with their feet. And when they're voting with their feet, believe me, their leaders have to hear them. We'll be talking of all talk shows. He is, of course, the one and only. Scott Ritter. Scott, thanks for joining us. Let me start with this Nord Stream nonsense. Uh, the United States wants us to believe 
a, a, a group of chaps in a yacht uh, sailed over it, uh, dived over the side and blew up a 20 billion euro a pipeline. What say you? I say that's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard. Um, I had the, uh, the opportunity to listen to uh, Seymour Hirsch uh, as he was informed of this and his live response. And after he stopped laughing and saying, oh, my God, he said he couldn't believe that this was indeed uh, the tactic being taken by the United States. This is absurd in the extreme. It's actually going to backfire because, you know, you when you put up forward a cover story that's composed of lies, uh, once those lies begin to be investigated, you you just blow more holes in it and you make the original reporting of Seymour Hirsch resonate all that all, all the more. Yes, of course, uh, the plumbers uh, who uh, who broke into the Watergate building, uh, if, that, if they'd come clean ab about that uh, from the start, Richard Nixon would have served out his term. It's the cover-up that's worst, isn't it? Absolutely, especially a stupid cover-up. Look, the, the CIA, and I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with their special activities group uh, in the past, um, you know, things they do aren't supposed to be discovered by the public. But one of the things they do up front when they are supposed to do an operation like this is develop a cover story as the operation unfolds that they can fall back on that is believable. What you don't want to do is after the fact, in a panic, uh, start making stuff up. And that's that's what they've done here. This is um, the mother of all bad cover stories. Yeah, I, the, it's bound to be because they uh, realize that uh, Seymour Hersh's revelations are gaining traction. Not just that they're gaining traction. Uh, look, for intelligence people, they're pretty stupid. Uh, if you've studied Seymour Hersh's modus operandi in the past, um, you know that he doesn't write one and done. He writes a story, he lets it percolate, and then he receives more information. He writes a follow-on story, then a follow-on story, then a follow-on story. And Seymour Hersh has said that uh, he has another uh, you know, issue uh, of the Nord Stream saga getting ready to be released, and then there will probably be another one after that. And what happens is, by the time he's done, it's all out there in black and white. The sources have come clean. We now can identify them. It's public knowledge. And it turns out that Seymour Hersh was right all along. I'm going with Seymour Hersh's track record as a, as a journalist on this one, not the CIA's track record of telling the truth. Well, look, this is a good moment to bring in uh, a video question uh, from uh, one of our stalwarts, Ian Puddick. He has a question on this very point. Bear with me, Scott, and we'll play it as a 30-second video. To George, and greetings to Scott Ritter, big fan from London. Um, question about Germany and Nord Stream, please. I know it's been done to death. Um, the Germans have no interest whatsoever in identifying who blew up their critical national infrastructure. Doesn't make any sense to me. The German media, again, have no interest. They do have interest in smearing Cy Hirsch, the, the, the legendary journalist, and also reference the Minsk agreements. Germany and France, I know the story, they deliberately misled and lied to Russia to deceive them to buy time for, for Ukraine to arm. But why? What benefit was it to Germany in doing that? How did they gain? It just, does, just doesn't make sense. I'd love to hear your thoughts, both of you. Take care. Bye-bye. 
It makes sense to a lot of people, Scott. Uh, do you think the, the German government uh, knew that this was going to happen? They must know now what did happen. Why are they so supine in the face of the facts? First of all, George, I have to just applaud you on your use of the English language. Um, bravo. Um, <laughs> supine. I'm going to steal that word. Uh, the Look. One only has to take a look at Ola Schultz's face when he was in the White House uh, with Joe Biden on February 7th of 2022, when Joe Biden said straight up, I'm going to take out the Nord Stream pipeline. The look of abject shock and terror on the face. Schultz knew about this. He, he was told by the president right there, I'm taking out your pipeline. Um, this wasn't a surprise. Now, who is Schultz? What is the political parties behind them? You know, in Germany, you have the resurgence of a uh, progressive liberal element, the Green Party, etc., that is 110% beholden to the United States for their political viability. They've bought into American economic concepts, America's geopolitical vision of how Europe fits in the world. Uh, and Germany, uh, these political and economic elites have totally sold out to the United States. This is why they're silent, because you know now they're confronted with the horror of what they've done, but they're too complicit. They've been they're, they're the ones who have set this thing up. They're the ones who allowed this to happen. So therefore, they're not about allow the truth to come out. There are some elements in Germany and the German parliament who are courageously starting to ask the right questions. And as you indicated earlier, Seymour Hersh's reporting is starting to gain traction. The questions are starting to be seen as very relevant. And the silence on the part of the German government, the German media and other German politicians is damning in terms of, you know, how it indicts them in, their, in terms of their complicity, complicity in this, uh, in this, what was a terrorist act by the United States. Turn to the battlefield itself, Scott. Uh, give us an update on the battle for Bakhmut and its significance. What's likely to happen as a result of it? Well, let nobody be any doubt that Bakhmut is of extreme strategic value. This is, uh, you know, in a very important uh, city, you know, the Bakhmut Solidar complex of underground salt mines, entrenchments, etc., was the logistical and command and control hub of the defensive line that Ukraine had spent eight years building uh, in the in the Donbas uh, region. Uh, Russia has spent since May grinding these defenses down in a very bloody, very violent operation that's taken tens of thousands of lives on both sides, well, on the Ukrainian side, thousands of lives on the Russian side, um, and the Russians are about to win. They're about to break through, take Bakhmut, and as the Ukrainian president said, if Bakhmut falls, because he's now trying to explain why he's poured so many thousands of lives into the defense of this position that's getting ready to capitulate, uh, he says if it falls, the door is wide open for you know, Russian exploitation to go on to Kramatorsk and other, uh, and other Donbass cities. Uh, it will basically unfold the Ukrainian defenses. This is a strategic victory, not only in terms of the military aspects of it, but also the political aspects. The, one cannot you know, overestimate the, the, the amount of demoralization that will take place on the Ukrainian side when Bakhmut falls. This was the strongest position. This was the most, you know, heavily defended position, heavily fortified positions, and the Russians just cracked it like a walnut. And um, for the rest of the Ukrainian soldiers out there, 
they know that that is their future. As this war drags on, the best they can hope for is a death that uh, is similar to the deaths that are taking place in Bakhmut as we speak. We've spoken before about casualties. We spoke after uh, von der Leyen uh, inadvertently, perhaps, uh, announced that uh, the Ukrainians had lost 100,000 soldiers. We talked about the ratio of uh, injured to dead, uh, normally two to three uh, for every dead soldier, two to three uh, wounded ones. Uh, we're now talking about 250,000 dead and 250,000 wounded, which wouldn't meet that ratio I just referred to. But even if that was true, half a million dead soldiers in a year is not Second World War casualty figures. It's First World War casualty figures, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, this is, this is a humanitarian tragedy on a scope and scale that has been unimaginable um, in Europe in modern times. Um, I mean, we, we had fooled ourselves, lulled ourselves into believing once the Cold War had ended that uh, the possibility of large-scale ground combat uh, in Europe was over, that uh, Europe was now, to quote Burrell, the garden. Uh, and, and there were no weeds, there were no parasites. It was perfect. Well, that's not the case. But as General Cavoli, he's the American general commands American forces and all allied forces in NATO, said in a presentation to, to a Swedish defense forum in, in, um, in January, what, what's happening, the violence, the scope and scale of the violence is beyond the imagination of anybody in NATO. And this is a very important thing, beyond the imagination. That means that NATO hasn't prepared for this, isn't trained for this, isn't equipped for this, cannot sustain this. Frankly speaking, NATO cannot engage in the kind of fighting that's taking place in Ukraine right now. NATO would be wiped off the face of the earth. Ask the British military, all 70,000 of them. You know, they wouldn't last a week in this kind of combat. Same thing with the Americans. We have more of our troops, but we don't have the ability to sustain them. We have no artillery ammunition in a war that's largely defined by the use of artillery. Um, this, this is unimaginable, the level of violence. I, 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 I say this over and over again because I'm trying to impart to your audience that this isn't Hollywood film. This isn't a movie. This isn't, you know minor deaths here and there. This is death on a scope and scale that the world has not witnessed since the Second World War and more likely since the First War. This is trench warfare. This is gruesome. This is horrifying. This is the kind of stuff that if you survive, you don't survive because your brain is going to be forever scarred by what you have witnessed. And it's not just the dead and the wounded. It's the participants. It's not just the combatants. It's the civilians. Tens of millions displaced. Look at what's happened to the landscape of Ukraine. And then ask yourself, was it worth it? Was what the West has done here worth the cost that we've imposed, we've imposed on the Ukrainian people? And I believe the answer isn't just no, but hell no. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say something. I might regret it. Uh, but uh, for the reasons you adumbrated and more, it seems to me that NATO is a busted flush in Ukraine. They cannot up the ante. They know that they cannot send their own soldiers in to fight and die in very significant numbers. We don't have enough of them apart from anything else and apart from the 
inherent lack of popularity for the war in the public opinion, which I spoke about uh, earlier. They cannot give Ukraine enough weaponry to change the balance on the battlefield, and therefore they're just waiting for for the end game. Uh, is that a wildly controversial thing to say, or does it square with your analysis? Well, I mean, it might be controversial to the politicians who have invested so much political capital into this failed gambit of supporting a proxy conflict against Russia using Ukraine, uh, because they don't want to admit it. Uh, but, you know, this is like the captain of the Titanic uh, failing to acknowledge that they struck an iceberg and water's coming into his ship. He's just saying, go ahead, let's make New York in the morning. Well, you ain't going to make New York. Um, and NATO isn't going to see this conflict through. NATO has lost this conflict. Jan Stoltenberg, the uh, Secretary General of NATO, uh, basically acknowledged it in a statement where he said, Ukraine is using 155 millimeter artillery ammunition at a, great, at a rate greater than we can replenish. They will run out of ammunition this summer, and we have no ability to make up for this. And when you run out of ammunition in a war that's defined by artillery, you die. And that's the fact. And so everything you said there, George, spot on accurate. It may be controversial, but you know, sometimes the truth is controversial. In this case, you're speaking truth. Yes, sir, people, we'll leave it at that. And uh, as a Scott Ritter said, uh, George, are you speaking the truth? And uh, five, you know, half a million people are dead already. And, you know, like it's uh, European on European violence. And as is uh, the white population on the brink of extinction. And they're kidding themselves. Well, I hope uh, and pray that uh, you'll, you know, you made an informed decision uh, this evening on uh, Truthful News. I'd like to thank uh, Lucano for brilliant engineering. Keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming. From the team and I, uh, till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.